Hey everyone, sorry, running a couple minutes late. Uh, this is episode 28, Vanity Unfair, uh, which I'm basing off this Vanity Fair article that I'll get into. Uh, you can do open topic. Uh, I just thought I would do another kind of latish night one of these just to see what kind of degenerates and dregs uh, show up. And we got Joe and Andrew right off the bat, so uh, it seems to be kind of a success already. Um, not going to go too late. I'm going to aim for probably about an hour, so because we all have shit to do tomorrow, some of us. Uh, I want to just jump into this Vanity Fair article, which kind of caught my eye, which I thought was kind of funny. It says, uh, will Republicans shut out the press in 2024? GOP politicians are increasingly uh, shirking at sit-down interviews, barring journalists from 2022 events, and skipping debates, an aversion to media scrutiny that could upend how the next presidential election cycle is covered. And a lot of this is kind of... Uh, the writer of this, uh, who's uh, Charlotte Klein, talking about, you know, if, if you don't let us cover you, then we can't give you favorable coverage. And uh, if you won't let us interview you, you can't get your messages out. And this is a game they've been playing now for about 10 years that uh, the political right is finally catching on to and seems to be pushing back on. Part of that could be with how Donald Trump handled the media. Um, part of that could be how they learned from him handling the media. And also part of it, I think, uh, could just be uh, just ca- just, again, catching on and the press becoming openly partisan, more openly partisan. Um, a, fun, a couple of fun quotes here that uh, Joe Simonson from Free Beacon pointed out on this piece. And I, and I liked some of the polls on this. Um, they said uh, one one advisor to. Uh, who was uh, said one anonymous advisor to one likely GOP, GOP president expert said, "quote I just don't even see what the point is anymore." Basically saying talking to you. It says uh, he, this person requested anonymity to discuss press strategy. We know reporters have disagreed with the Republican Party, but it used to be thought you could get a fair shake. Now every reporter and every outlet is just chasing resistance rage clicks. It says a competing theory of the case is that there really is not much Republicans can say. The past six years have seen them rally behind someone like Trump, etc. And I like what Joe Simonson said on this, which was um, Republicans are catching on and saying you guys are just basically Democrats with bylines. And then this author basically goes on to say, well, you're awful and uh, we don't want to talk to you anyway. Um, another fun one was an ex uh, or was a Marco Rubio staffer. It said today reporters can still grab many Republican office holders in the hallways of Congress. That's Manu Raju. Uh, but the extent of the engagement can depend on the Republican. One advisor, Marco Rubio, told me a reporter had recently said to him that Rubio's accessibility to the press in Washington would stand him in good stead should he eventually seek the presidency again. And the advisor's, uh, this, uh, the advisor's quote was, are you kidding me? So the minute we announce is you guys put your blue jerseys on again, and that's the end of that. This also goes back to what we saw with Martha McSally calling Manu Raju a hack and, and all of this stuff. Um, another fun part of this is uh, Ron McDaniel pulled out of the uh, Commission for Debates or whatever. That was a big scandal. Um, and that was a move I personally think should have been coming as soon as Candy Crowley interrupted Mitt Romney. That really, you know, when I talked to people who were around back then, that was really a seminal and galvanizing moment where the press had gone from just kind of trying to nudge Democratic candidates over the line like they tried to do with uh, John Kerry and it didn't work. And obviously with Barack Obama, they were not going to let John McCain win that race either. And they certainly were going to do everything in their power to make sure Mitt Romney didn't win. And the Candy Crowley moment was something we'd never seen in a debate before. 
uh, where she essentially interjected an attempt to fact check him live during the debate. And it turns out she was wrong and both Obama was wrong. And this was uh, as in regards to Obama labeling Benghazi a terrorist attack. And so pretty much ever since that moment, we've seen this kind of, you know, eroding trust as far as the political right and as far as media is concerned. And now you have them kind of concern trolling both the Republican Party and the political right. And um, how I would argue that this becomes different than what it was with Donald Trump is you're seeing a generation of candidates and strategists who have come up with the Internet. They've come up with social media, people like Christina Pasha in Florida, um, and they know how to push back against this stuff as opposed to just kind of being, you know, a, uh, a, a, a Georgetown Law School stuffed shirt, just trying to, you know, glom on to the latest senator or House member. Uh, you have people in press offices who have come up through social media. They've learned how to harness it. They've learned how to weaponize it. And you're seeing this to where they're just not going to take these kinds of shenanigans anymore. As I've always advised, you shouldn't be talking to these people anyway. Um, a couple of things that I would recommend that if you do, you, you are going to have to use these people. As, it get, as you get into campaign season. And so if they, you know, I've said, if they want interview answers, you get them in writing. If they want to like 60 minutes to you, if they want to sit down with 60 minutes, you, you, you make them agree to bringing your own camera crews and, and things of this. There's things you can do to push back against this stuff to show how dishonest they are without just shutting them out completely. Some of them I agree should be shut out completely. Uh, you know, someone like John Harwood had no business moderating a, GOP primary debate in 2016, and that's largely because of the face of the party with Rance Priebus, who was one of these Washington, you know, media establishment guys. And what you're seeing now is kind of a new generation of, of candidates and people who are pushing back against a lot of the stuff. Um, I think they have to be a little bit more precise than, you know, Donald Trump's kind of fire hose of shit that he just sprays all over them where they can, you know, too readily act like a victim or, or act like, you know, we're, we're just doing our job, sir, or whatever. And there are a few people obviously that jump into mind who are doing a good job of this. Um, but it's a fun article to go back and read there. Uh, there's, uh, there's a, uh, decent amount of cope in this. Um, Pasha is mentioned in this, and this was to do with who was, uh, given press passes for the Florida GOP convention. And who wasn't? And there were several kind of biased reporters bitching that they were left out. And Pasha again pushes back and says, you know what? I'm sorry you didn't get on the, the list, but just go ahead and go write your hit piece that you were going to write anyway. So, again, this is a new this is a new generation of strategists and people in, in politics, on the, especially on the political right, who have gone out of their way to make these people the opposition. And, and that goes back to, you know, a Steve Bannon quote, God rest his soul. Uh, talking about that the media is primarily the opposition party over the Democrats because the Democrats right now can't get their shit together. There's, you know, one obstacle in this country, and it's a corrupt media, uh, which is what we're all doing here tonight. So just a fun thing. You should go read it. Um, some journals were passing this around today and just kind of acting like, oh, no, we, we have no role in uh, why the public has us rated just below the trust factor of greasy hobo taint. Um, which is always fun to see. It's like, what, us? We didn't do anything. Well, you did something. And until you guys, you know, look inward, which they are experts at not doing, then, you know, we're just going to continue down this road, I guess. So just something that's fun that caught my eye. Obviously, there's a ton of news that came out today and tonight. We have the GDP com numbers coming out Thursday. Um, I saw a great tweet that said, uh, as far as the DOJ exploring a criminal probe on Trump, said, well, I guess the GDP numbers really are that bad. 
And uh, I would argue that that release was not accidental either. So that the GDP numbers will be knocked out of the news, even as this administration tries to pull off one of the more brazen and daring uh, operations of gaslighting that I've ever seen, certainly in presidential history, which is uh, changing the definition of what a recession is to try and convince people that they're not in a recession, even though people kind of already figured out that we're heading into a recession if we're not in one already. Um, it really, I mean, this is kind of just old school Washington, Joe Biden style politics where we're just going to spin this. We're not going to tell people recessions coming because they know that's going to hurt their chances in elections opposed to just being honest. Uh, but it is funny that this is something where, again, all of us can see this. We, we see what they're trying to do in real time. We see people like the New York Times and the Associated Press uh, jumping in to immediately pick up the uh, administration's line of, oh, no, this isn't a recession. There's different things of measuring. And uh, to think that other people don't see what they're doing uh, is beyond me. And that's why it's it's more funny to me than anything else um, that this is just like, this is just classic Washington administration spin. There's nothing else to it. And they know what they're doing. But it's, again, you have someone who is an establishment politician in Joe Biden, who this is, I guess, the best they can do. Uh, so that's obviously out. Uh, like I said, we'll keep it kind of open topic. Uh, I'm looking at only going for uh, about, well, we'll go probably until a little bit uh, after, 10 minutes after the hour, uh, but probably keeping it short tonight. I do plan on doing a couple more of these this week, so that's why I want to keep them short as opposed to going, you know, a Titanic-style movie Godfather 2 marathon like we we're kind of prone to doing. Um so again, uh, if you if you are in line to jump into call, if you're new here, uh, feel feel free to jump into the caller queue. Uh, I, I don't I don't screen these. I don't I have no idea. I know who some of you people are. Um, so I don't screen these. Feel free to say whatever's on your mind. Uh, I just ask that you kind of keep your point quick. And I know I'm not always the best at that either. Um, so just keep your point quick. And if you if you have comments or questions, something on your mind, uh, I don't really care what the topic is. So, again, we'll go probably here for about an hour or as many times as we can get. Uh, we have five people up now. So, again, feel free to jump up. Whatever's on your mind, don't be shy. If you're brand new to this, just hit the uh, jump into queue, and uh, there's the microphone button right next to the thumb emoji, and that's how you mute and unmute your mic. And I would just request to keep your microphone muted uh, if someone else is talking. So that's it. Those are the ground rules. That's the only thing we're going to do. I know I'm being a hard ass at 10 o'clock at night, but uh, whatever. Joe, how are you? What's on your mind? Evening, Stephen. Um, I'm going to be using my NPR voice at this hour because I have you on one screen and I've got my daughter sleeping in her crib on the other screen. So if it's a little low, just uh, just know I'm just using my nightly NPR voice to just keep everybody happy. Um what I actually uh, wanted to mention tonight, which you had kind of alluded to, was this whole redefinition of what a recession is has me falling out of my chair laughing because it's the latest example of the Biden administration trying to get ahead of a news cycle. But the, the thing is, is that nobody outside of their most devoted followers believe it. And it's been part of just the trend of his presidency. I mean, you go back to the very beginning, right? The in the summer of 2021, he lifted the federal mask mandate where he released that whole video of vaxxed or masked because he had a pretty terrible 
news cycle week. I mean, we can, I think we can all agree that that's why he did it. I don't even remember what actual news cycles hit. I think one of them was related to the pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline, but it was like one out of three um, in that particular week. And they were just starting to get hammered on it. So then he was like, well, I guess we should probably lift the mask mandates to get ahead of this. The other example of this was in was last November, where after Youngkin won in Virginia and after Phil Murphy came within two percentage points of losing in New Jersey, what did they do? Basically at midnight that Friday, so that the Sunday talk shows would not be the only story would be about Youngkin and New Jersey and how it's looking like a red wave. We're going to pass our infrastructure bill in the dead of night and just that will be us getting ahead of the news cycle. Funny thing about that is that there is a recent story that showed, I think, like 75 percent of the public that was polled did not even know that the infrastructure bill was passed and became law. And now this recession story is just like the cherry on top of everything, where when you have blue checks that are on Twitter saying, well, actually, the technical definition of a recession, you know, one thread out of 500 tweets, it's like, you know that you're losing, like telling isn't selling, you know, to kind of borrow the line from boiler room. Um, and it's just like, it's, it, it's so transparent. And like, I, I'm kind of with you, I can't even get mad at it. I just kind of have to laugh as to how pathetic it really is. It's, it's one of these things they can't hide. There's, there's things in politics you can spin around, you can hide, you can um, muddy the waters on to make it to where people can't understand. Um, but it, it's, it's just something you can't, you can't hide from people. Uh, it, it's similar to, you know, Obama going out and saying nobody lost their doctor. Well, people got pink slips from, you know, that your insurance plan no longer covers. You couldn't hide from that. Uh, you can't really hide from inflation. I mean, you can deflect blame. You can say Putin's whatever, uh, which that'll come. It, this will go from we're not in a recession to changing the definition of recession to Putin's recession. Um, and that, I think, is, to me, that's the funniest thing about it. And I don't, I don't mean to laugh because I mean, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to take it right in the loins over this. Um, but it's, again, it's spinning for to spin's sake. And I said that this was always what Jen Psaki got off on. You could tell she, she thought it was a game uh, with the media. She, she always thought it was a game to see, okay, how can I come out from under this one? How, what, what can I come up with that will, you know, get them to just roll their eyes or laugh or, or whatever. And she was an expert at that. Unfortunately, she's probably no longer in this administration, although, you know, she's probably certainly advising them in some capacity. And now you kind of have the Obama backbenchers who are leading things. And, you know, I think it was Jackie Heinrichs who first pointed out from the from the actual gov, you know whitehouse.gov White House that they were going to change the they were changing the definition. They were saying, well, experts aren't really you know uh, unanimous on what caught you know what what defines the start of a recession. Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that, whatever. But again, if you go back forty years, even using AP style book, you can see it's two generally two straight quarters of negative GDP growth, which is what. If we wouldn't even be here if they didn't already know that that's going to happen on Thursday. They already know what it's going to look like. So they're again, like you said, they're trying to get in front of it, but they don't know how to get in front of it. This is this is a train moving that's just going to kill all of them, basically, who are struck on the tracks. 
Um, so I guess it makes them feel better to say it's not a train. It's it's a, a Hot Wheels Tonka truck that's actually coming. And yeah, I, I'm not even mad at it. I think it's just so laughably obvious. And the thing that you have to pay attention to is everyone in the media, every economist in the media, every eco- economic journalist or whatever, they know what they're doing. And they're laughing at it along with them. So now the question becomes, who jumps in and starts carrying that line for them? Uh, this obnoxious redef- redefining. And that's what you have to watch. We already had the New York Times doing it today. They were kind of the first ones out the gate, just picked it right up and went with it. Uh, we also have the AP doing it. Um, and so you just you have to put yourselves in the shoes of, I'm not even talking about Deese. I'm not even talking about the White House comm shop. I think there's only like two people left in that entire uh, department. I'm talking about how a journalist, if you're a professional journalist and you know I, you went to school for journalism or uh, you took economics because you really wanted to write economic policy and you, you end up at a place like the New York Times or the Washington Post, which is a pretty high profile job. There's not m- anywhere else to go after that unless I guess you ditch it and go to Substack or whatever. So you've worked your way out of J school, you've worked your way up, you've you've worked for like local New York things or whatever, like Gothamist or Gawk or whatever, and now you've worked your way up and you're the economic reporter for, say, the New York Times or one of them. And you now find yourself so ideologically bent toward, I have to do whatever I can to keep the orange man out of the White House and his party because they are a threat to my democracy or whatever, that you are fully conscious and willing and able to just pick up the Biden administration's line that this is not how we judge a recession. Well, of course, you know, that's not true, but you yet you do it anyway. And that's kind of what I'm stuck on. This idea that this is so blatantly obvious what they're doing. This is, again, not something that they can hide. Um, And yet you will still have reporters who will just go, "Okay, that's what we're doing. And this is what they've basically said, that this is what their career is now, that they've come down to this, as opposed to going, uh, no, you guys, this is actually, we are in a recession, you know, which I think will be next. They're just going to do the blunt, they're going to do the blunt of it now and try to ease people into it in, in a couple of months. Um, but it, it is just astounding to watch how uh, how something that is so disprovable and something that is so obvious of what they're doing that they still, even in that matter, they don't even care. They're just, they're going to carry, they're going to pick it up. They're going to carry the water bucket for them. Uh, knowing how unpopular Joe Biden is already. I think he's at 33 or 34 average and he'll go lower. Um, and they're just going to do this. And other than, I guess, maybe Ducey and Heinrichs who questioned, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre today, where she said they wouldn't give the definition. So you're telling us that how we've defined a recession for the last 40 some odd years, that's not how we do it. And then when you're asked, okay, then what are the indicators? How do you look at it? Uh, we're not, I'm not going to tell you that we, we, there's several factors. Uh, and you know that they pretty much just have Paul Krugman on the bat phone. Um, and that's kind of what they're going with. They're just going to see what Paul Krugman says. And I guess that's what we're going to go with. <laughs> uh, but again, to put yourself in the shoes of the journalists who are just going to just say, okay, this is what we're following. And they do this for, I mean, they, they're, they're going to do it here, but they do it on such things like when the CDC started putting out the term birthing people, which is the first place that I saw it. And Walensky started calling birthing people. Suddenly the media just fell into line and started. That's how we're referring to women now, birthing people. 
and the speed of what they do it is just kind of the most astounding thing that we saw it with the don't say gay thing, uh, which, you know, I had that, I had that exchange with this guy from Florida Sun Sentinel, wherever, where he just fully admitted the reason we say don't say gay is because it just has a good ring and it's marketing. It's just marketing one one They don't care about the truth of it. They just care about, uh, how, again, how can we spin this for the administration basically, uh, because we just don't, we, we can't, tolerate Republicans anymore, as opposed to giving people the truth and having voters make up their mind. It really, really is uh, astounding to watch happen in real time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just one final thought on this. Um, Their job spinning for the administration is made, (laughs) I I would argue, somewhat more difficult um, based on who is in charge of communication with the administration. Um, you know, it does come down from Biden, of course, but like with Corinne Jean-Pierre and with, um, you know, Andrew Bates and with all these other fuckheads. Um, I, I think it was Jim Garrity at National Review who made the point of how, you know, in each year, you basically, in, in a president's term, to start off, you basically have the A, the a team. As far as your your staffers, um, your communications people, your um, you know your your bureaucrats in certain places, you have the A team, and as you keep going through a president's term, that A team turns into the B team, turns into the C team, and then eventually he made the point how like in Obama's second term, we were on the D team. The difference is with Joe Biden is that he started his term basically with Obama's. E team, essentially. And we are right now into like, I don't know, H team, J team, and it's only going to get worse from this point on. The communication is not going to get better. Um, I honestly can't believe it could get any worse than Corrine Jean-Pierre or anyone else in the administration, but I certainly believe that even after the midterms, I do not see him, you know, pivoting back to the center. They're like his presidency, it will effectively definitively be over at that point. And so just go back into the office, swivel around the chair and just have everyone throw up their hands and just say, well, we might as well cash out these last two years. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's going to get any better at all from them. And I think that the journos that are just going to be carrying the water for the administration, it's just going to make them even look even more foolish and even more stupid when they're defending stuff from an administration that doesn't even care, let alone believe it in the first place. Uh, I mean, my first reaction to this Washington Post story about Trump being the focus of a criminal probe, uh, my first reaction was this is what they're hoping is the focus from now until November. Um, It's not an accident that this is coming out when it's coming out. And that's honestly how I see this. They see how bad GDP is going to be. They're seeing a recession. They're seeing still gas prices are still, you know, this is another, this is another thing. I think as Joe Simonson points out that this administration is an expert in propping up their failures. And this thing with, you know, they're bragging about falling gas prices is, is another case of that where they're sitting here trying to tell people, oh, gas prices have fallen 69 cents, which is the most decline in, 20 years and it's like where did they start at you know and they know they can just put this in a misspelled meme and people will then just move on and i really do believe 
that the timing of this thing with the Trump criminal probe uh, really has to do with they want this to be the focus heading into the midterms, period. That's what that's all they, they want, uh, because they just know they're, they're not going to shut up about Trump. Uh, and, and whatever it is. And the fact that he's kind of resurfaced now makes it easy for them to not shut up about him. And that's kind of where, when you talk about what's the comms policy, that's the comms policy. The comms policy is to continue to talk about Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump all the time. Uh, I mean, if you went to, I think I did this exercise once before. I'm going to go to CNN's homepage right now. Uh, let's see. CNN.com. I'll just go right in here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to just count off the amount of stories that I see about Donald Trump here. Uh, there's one at the top. There's two, three, four, five, six, seven, right off the bat, right off the bat, right. The whole left-hand column is, uh, Donald Trump. The next one is John Roberts. We have one on Ukraine. Uh, we have one on Biden saying 75 poll of 75% Democratic voters want someone other than Biden. And then we have one on Pence. Then we have one on Marjorie Taylor Greene and Trump. And that's it. So a total of 12 stories uh, of Donald Trump right on the front page of CNN. And that's I guarantee you that's how it's been on a nightly basis. And so that to me is the strategy. The strategy is to distract from uh a very real coming recession, which, and we don't know how long this is going to be. Generally, they, you know, recessions can go on for a few months. They can go on for a year, depending on how things adjust and, or they could just turn into a full blown depression. And because they're too busy spinning and because you have media that's too busy focused on this, that we're not going to get that information. Uh, we're going to hear lots of information about January 6th, but we're not going to get information about how long uh, economists are experts expect us to last and the kind of damaging effects we're going to have as we head into fall. We're heading into, you know, uh, holiday season and how that's going to affect shopping and things like that. So that to me is the con strategy is to just keep the focus on Trump. And again, whether or not that's something that's a direct line coming from the White House to some of these news outlets, I don't think it necessarily even has to be. They just they just know that this is what they're going to do and uh, and just keep it keep it right there in the spotlight. So um yeah, it, it, it's the the redefining of the recession again is it's one of these things when I first saw it, I was like, OK, well, now just pay attention to who falls in line. And again, it's the usual suspects falling right in line. And you're going to you're going to expect to see someone like John Harwood will be next. That's CNN. And then we're going to have the Washington Post uh, fall right in line. That'll be Jen Rubin and, and, and company. And it'll just then it will spill over to CBS, ABC, NBC. Then it'll spill over to The View. Congratulations. Congratulations, Alyssa Farr. You earned it. And, and and off and running we are. So we're not going to see, and, and anyone else that would stand up and say, no, we're, we're in a recession, folks. Can you not fucking look out your window? Um, and again, th they have a choice to do this. It's their choice to follow the admin's line on this. It's their choice to, like I said, you know, you're, you spent your entire career setting yourself up to be like a New York Times economics journalist, and you don't have the professional cojones to sit there and stand up and say, no, 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 we're in a recession and, and, we, and we owe people the truth. So, um, again, that's the angle I'm looking for. And, and, and it's again, it's it's not even one of the things, like I said, I can be mad about because it's so it's just one of these old Washington tricks of spin. How can we spin this? How do, how do we spin this? Like, whatever. 
And not one person in that room goes, maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe we should just say, hey, this is a recession, it's from the pandemic, it's going to last, da 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 but they know that's going to blow their electoral chances, and the media is there to uh, mitigate that damage as much as possible. Yeah. All right, thanks, Stephen. Have a good rest of your night. Hey, Stephen, um, I was just calling in to ask, uh, I saw this really great point that basically, what do you think about the idea that basically the old, the idea of an unbiased press was just an anomaly that existed in the post-war era and we're just returning to what the United States always has been when it comes to journalism which is just each political party has their own rags and yellow journalism and that's just the way it's going to naturally be when you have such a huge place that has different ideologies battling back and forth hold on Steven hold on mic trouble hold on all right, can you hear me? You're coming. All right, sorry about that. I was having mic trouble there for a minute. I don't know if that was connection or what. No, I didn't fall asleep. Um, here's here's what I I would pose a question to you. Um, who do you think is the most honest news outlet? Period. That's you read. I'm not even asking for ideology. When you when you read a journalist or a news outlet. Who to you is the most honest? And I'm not even asking trustworthy. I'm not even asking. You can even give me specific names of people. Who who do you think is the most honest? And I would say, how about this? Even give me your top three if you have them and where they fall. Isaac Shore from National Review. Okay, so National Review is uh, Probably, I'd say, Mark Caputo from NBC and, well, just the guy you always bring up, Brett Bayer from Fox. Okay, so uh, is Mark? Oh wait, Caputo Jonathan, Jonathan Swan. Jonathan Swan would be number. Okay, and so Swan, Swan is Axios, Brett Bayer is Fox News. Then you have National Review, um, I, I, and I I don't think I would really take issue with any of those. Um, I think you said Mark Caputo. Isn't is him? He with Political Florida, or am I thinking of somebody? He else? got promo- um, he got a new uh, position at NBC. Oh, he did. Well, congrats, Mark. I would say, yeah, so generally Mark is, is, is pretty decent. So you name names. So would you say that National Review is generally an honest news outlet? I know that they've done more reporting. They've, yes. they've gotten more with John Hyde and John McCormick. Okay, right. If, if I had so, one place that I tr- trust generally to be as honest as possible, it would be National Review. Okay. Now, is that because do you think you have a conservative bent, which I don't even know if you do or not? I, um, or is it just because that this is where you can go to get accurate information, which you can then source yourself to say, oh, yeah, this checks out. Um, and so my, the point I'm getting at this is because just because an outlet is biased doesn't mean that they aren't right or they aren't telling you the truth. And. I think that that kind of pokes a hole in the the left has their outlets and the right has theirs because I don't even think it's about ideology. It's just basically about who's telling the truth. And I think there, there's some outlets on the left that, you know, have very good writers who are generally being honest uh, with their audiences. And you may disagree or agree, but then you can source data and you can they're, they're basing things on statistics and things like that. I don't think that it just comes down to a matter of left or right because – the, there is a there is a sphere of conservative media. I wouldn't. I would argue. Obviously, National Review is is a bent from the right. But again, that's when I say, are they wrong? 
Well, no, they're for the most part not. They have opinion columnists, um, but generally their arguments are well-sourced. They're well-educated. You can back them up with facts, data sources, things like that. Um, Then you go to something like NBC News. Okay, is NBC News an outlet you can trust? Well, why or why not? For me, it's not. Um, That goes back to just staging stories like walking through uh, puddles when a, when a reporter is trying to show you she's in a kayak or the Jane Polly thing with the four trucks. There is a pattern of deception. And then it goes down to what stories do they ignore in the, uh, for the sake of an ideological drive. So it's not even to me left versus right. It's right versus pretty much the entire uh, subsection of media. That includes network media. That includes any channel that really isn't Fox or Fox business. They have, and it's not even that it's a bet. They've just frozen conservatives out of their viewpoints. Uh, there's not like a gun expert that uh, sits for, for any of these networks. There's not a religious expert. They don't have a pro-life point of view. Uh, that's there to counterbalance whatever nut at, you know, that shittery that Joy Reid is pushing, for instance, they just don't believe in it. They don't believe that these viewpoints should be allowed to exist. And so to, to argue that it's, you know, left versus right, it's not. It's basically the right versus everybody else, period. That's that's what it is. Um, and again, as someone who is obviously on the right, not really, I'm not in that media ecosystem, although I've written for National Review, obviously, in your post and Fox and things like that. Um I look at it and I just say, are you being honest with your audience? Now, I would argue there are outlets on the right that don't do that. And I would certainly argue that there are writers on the right that don't do that. But you're not looking at whole ecosystems of media that do that. And I think that that's the difference. I, to, to say that, um, and I, I don't think anyone's ever made the argument that the press has been unbiased. And I don't think I've, I've ever made the argument that I'm just trying to get the media back to the point of being honest because I haven't seen an honest media since I started paying attention to it, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Um, I think the point is to just get them to be honest. And if they can't be honest, then we're just going to bankrupt you and we're going to destroy whatever credibility that you think you have. And it makes it easy for me. We have open media now. We have social media. We have open platforms. And that's a lot of this whole disinformation shit comes down to is they just they can't control the information anymore. And that's a lot of the the bent people like Nina Jankowicz and Taylor Lorenz and Brian Stelter and Oliver Darcy and Media Matters. That's largely uh, the bent that they have is they just don't control what you can see, what you can read, what you can hear. They're trying and they're succeeding in some places. But again, I think I flat out reject the premise that it's left versus right. Okay, uh, I can understand that sort of perspective. Um, I hope you have a good night and you get to speak to a bunch of other people. You have a good night. Thanks, Andrew. Sorry about the connection issue there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's a good, it's a good observation. I just, I, I, I just, I reject, I reject the, uh, the hypothesis just out of hand. But that's nothing on Andrew. It's a good question. Um, I'm going to pretty much try to get through everyone here. I'm going to try to end with Rob. Uh, like I said, it's going to be pretty much a hard out. So if I don't get to you guys, like I said, um, what is this, Tuesday? I'm, I probably plan on being back here Thursday and then maybe Saturday as well. So so just because I'm going on vacation, or I'm, I'm going not really on vacation, but I'm doing something next week. So I'm going to try to get as many as these. Carlos, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. Um, so, well, touching on the whole Washington Post story, the top two Reddit stories right now are about the DOJ opening that probe. So... 
they're they're eating the bait over there on on Reddit. But uh, it seems to me that even if one were to believe everything that this administration uh, throws out there, uh, they just seem incredibly in, incompetent in uh, just communicating that message. You know, the whole uh, $35 per person uh, tweet that, that which is still up by the way, um, you know, telling you that the gas has gone down 69 cents after going up, you know, over $3, uh, just trying to just throw anything at the wall that sticks just to try something, I guess. Um, but it's just a disaster. And I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I know why they're doing it, but it's just seems like a complete, uh, disaster. So I don't know if, you know, if you had any thoughts on, on the admin, just throwing whatever it can out there. Um, and then on a, on a lighter note, I wanted to get your thoughts about the, uh, the upcoming uh, Con Air reboot with Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> yeah. uh, people are crazy if they don't think he didn't do that on purpose. And yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> come on. Something's going on with my mute mic. Sorry about that. So if I don't respond. Yeah, I mean, he kind of he kind of did this last year, two years ago. He always shows up to camp and something. like. Didn't he show up like two years ago dressed as a cowboy or uh, in a plaid shirt and like a bolo tie or so. So people are fucking crazy to think he didn't do that on purpose. Of course he, I mean, come on. Uh, I mean, that was kind of my first immediate thought. Um, as far as like, why, why is the admin so bad at this? Well, the admin is only as good as the person in charge of it. So when you have a, you know, I think it was, Politico or someone who basically said Joe Biden is a part-time president. Um, he, he's only kind of there four days a week and he doesn't like, he's generally done by two or three in the afternoon, even though obviously the country is a 24 seven job and no one's saying it's do things 24 seven. But when you have someone who's just not there, and when I say just not there, he's really just not there in a few departments. So, you kind of have a lot of people left to govern themselves. It's like, where's the president? Uh, we don't know. He, he took off for the day. It's 1 PM. <laughs> um, or he has one meeting or as, as I've said this, they, they're really good at just rolling him out for 20 minutes a day for like one appearance a day. And then he's gone. So we don't even really see him. And so when you say, is it laziness? Yeah, it's because they, again, everything stems from that person. And this is very true with Trump as well. You know, Trump was kind of, uh, just a, a workaholic, all, the switch is always on, which is why we got, you know, 3 a.m. tweets about Kofefi and shit like that. And as I've always also said, the country kind of takes on an identity of its president. It's just something about us that I, I think is unique about us. So, you know, when Obama was president and the media is pushing hope and change and they're pushing, you know, retro branded Pepsi cans and, you know, recycling, you know, the summer of love bullshit. Um, the country just takes on its personality of generally the people in charge of it. And so when you sit there and go, how is it that they're just throwing anything at the wall? How is it that they're lazy? How, how are they just doing this? Why is this so obvious? Well, it's because the person in charge is that way. So he, he's old. He doesn't have a lot of stamina. And, I, and, and not on top of that, he has cancer. So we, we're dealing with that now as well. And so that's really, really what it is. If there's mixed messaging, if it's confused messaging, um, it's generally because the people running this administration are confused. You know, um, who who is actually in charge of messaging? Is it is it 
Biden? Is it Susan Rice? Is it Ron Klain? I would argue it's probably, I, I don't, as I've said, I don't think Susan Rice gets enough of the credit for what is going on with this administration. Um, she's just kind of back there and she's not out in the forefront and not enough people are talking about her. Um, so, I mean, t- to me, it's the simplest explanation. You look at the behavior, you look at the person in charge. Uh, like Joe just said, he just, he offers up mixed messaging all the time. Uh, people capitalize on that. And so again, it, it really is, we just got to throw something out there and Biden probably just says, okay, you know, whatever, do that. And then it goes badly. And I think it was also in political. They reported that he ends up, you know, throwing a temper tantrum about why this isn't working. And people just go, fuck, I'm out of here. Um, I, I said that I thought it was Kate Benningfeld was the one who was leaking all of these stories to the Washington Post, to the New York Times about what it's like working in Biden's White House where people you don't see him a lot of the day. Um, people are confused about, you know, what their job is, what their role is. Uh, because they don't know who to go to. They don't know who to talk to. They don't know if it's like, do I go talk to Ron Klain? I don't know. No, he's over there. Ron Klain's busy tweeting in the bathroom, so you're going to need to go somewhere else. And like I said, you don't get that many stories, uh, especially about a Democratic White House, in that many weeks. And then you have Kate Bedingfeld going, peace out, losers. And then it's like, huh, I wonder who did all of that leaking. Uh, So I really think it really is that simple. Uh, The administration... And the competence thereof take on the identity of the person in charge of it. And you're seeing we have one of the most inept politicians of the last 60 years in our government um, who, I mean, Joe Biden was his kind of a career punchline. If you were ever around in the 90s or whatever, this was just the dumb senator who always stuck his fucking foot in his mouth. And, you know, Obama kind of changed that when he picked him for VP. Uh, I mean, Biden would probably be in the Senate still. And he'd probably still be polling about 3% for president uh, had Obama not, you know, plucked him out of the Senate there as assassination ins- insurance. So, I mean, that's really, to me, is the simplest answer. If if this looks like kind of the, uh, the stupidest explanations possible, it's because the guy in charge uh, has basically one working living brain cell left. Yeah, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's insane. Just looking at his glossed over eyes at the speech this morning, I can. I was just like, okay, <laughs> but uh, but thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. Cheers, Carlos. Let's go here and take Brandon again. Apologies if like my mic. I'm so I tried to mute my mic, um, and it looks like there's kind of a glitch going on. So if I don't respond right away, no, I didn't fall asleep or or whatever. So sorry about that. Go ahead, Brandon. Hey, Stephen. Um... I don't know if you've been following the story that broke about a day or two ago where um, Chuck Chrysler let it be known that uh, a number of uh, whistleblowers of the FBI came to him stating that the higher ranking officials are taking um, any element of uh, the Hunter Biden investigation that is incriminating and uh, labeling it as disinformation and putting it in a restricted access folder in their, in their computer system. Uh, Jerry Dunleavy from Washington Examiner, uh, for which, again, I, I also write for. Um, and, and also part of that, if you remember the the 50 intelligence experts uh, back when the New York Post story broke, uh, Nina Jankowicz shared the story, Jen Psaki shared the story, obviously um, any pro-Biden person shared the story to, to keep the New York Post story from spreading. 
they said the 50 intelligence analysts who call the Hunter Biden laptop uh, disinformation, whatever. And Jerry Dunleavy goes through and he names some of them. And some of them turned out to be guys who worked on Crossfire Hurricane and participated, I guess, in the uh, on behalf of the Clintons and the Clinton probes and uh, things of that such. I'm, I'm looking for his uh, tweet uh, as it goes. But, yeah, so I haven't I haven't dug into all of the details of this, but I do know uh, the Jerry Dunleavy Grassley says highly credible whistleblowers tell his office that verified verifiable derogatory info on Hunter Biden was falsely labeled as disinfo inside the FBI in 2020 during the investigation into uh, the president's son. He says uh, the people included in this uh, in the FBI was Timothy Thebold, who's potentially violated the Hatch Act for his anti-Trump social media posts and Brian Outen, who was involved in Crossfire Hurricane. Um, if there's one, if there's one agency department that just needs to be completely uh, stripped of every single person working for it and bulldozed to the ground, abolished and started over, it is the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, I don't think that there's, I, I don't think that there's anyone, you know, who's not on the political left who disagrees with me on that. The way that this. Uh, the way that this department has been politicized and we saw this again with, you know, uh, Jonathan Swan's Axios report uh, where he said Trump's going to come in and he's going to fire everyone and then put in his own people and people just, you know, the, the expertise folks uh, started freaking out. And I'm just like, yeah, that's generally what the executive gets to do. Sorry, guys. Um, but uh, yeah, if you, if you have any other thoughts or things that I'm missing on it, feel free. But yeah, I'm aware of this and, Again, this just shows the fucking rot happening inside of the FBI. It's not even, it's not even that it's Trump or Hunter Biden. It's just, again, uh, stories, uh, charges don't get pressed against certain people. People get to walk. Uh, we're seeing, you know, this funny thing about, uh, you know, banning going to jail for defying a congressional subpoena. And that's, you know, carried out by the feds and Lois Lerner after Eric Holder, after the Hillary server guy. Um, the, the funniest thing to me about the James Comey saga with Trump firing James Comey, which is that was the first time that they talked about impeaching Trump. And I just laughed and whispered, Hillary would have fired him too. Everybody knew that. That was one of the worst kept secrets in Washington is that Hillary Clinton was going to dismiss James Comey if she was elected president as well because of the laptop uh, yep. or uh, her server. And we would, not, we would not have gotten shrieks and cries about impeaching Hillary Clinton on that. Yeah, uh, I think it was Margot Cleveland had an article today in The Federalist where she was revealing some of the uh, information uh, that was on the laptop. And uh, this this may have been public information before, but apparently there's a video of Hunter Biden on on, on camera talking to a, a prostitute in 2019 saying that, oh, yeah, I was out partying in Vegas last year and someone stole one of my laptops. And, yeah, I think it was the Russians. And she was like, well, uh, they might blackmail you. He's like, yeah, they might. I don't know. Uh, my dad's running for president. So who knows? Uh, I'm like, this is just so egregiously bad. I, I just, I mean, obviously the, uh, you know, uh, uh, the leadership of the FBI is going to get dragged in front of a House uh, committee and be uh, grilled under oath uh, early next year. But I, I think this is so bad that regardless of what Merrick Garland does or doesn't do to Trump, uh, I think that, you know, the, the, the DeSantis DOJ is going after the Biden family in 2025. They certainly will if 
Biden's DOJ goes after Trump. And I've, I've said this, and this is why I'm not really responding to this Washington Post story. I'm not really tweeting about it uh, until more comes out. Because, again, we've seen where these stories go for anonymous sources. And, um, you know, it's that, it's that funny tweet where, you know, let's see Trump wiggle out of this one. Oh, he does. And, oh, nevertheless, um, certainly uh, the press is doing the Bidens no favors by not covering this. And they're doing kind of the textbook thing, which is you ignore the story. You completely ignore it the right covers it and the right continues to recover it and whatever. And then it becomes just a story on the political right, which is like a conspiracy theory and blown out of proportion. We saw like with Benghazi, for example, and the, so was the IRS story. Um, but by letting, I mean, this isn't like a story. There's documented proof here. There's, he's on videotape. Uh, there's files from his hard drive there. You know, we have his text messages. So this is not something they can just ignore and hope it goes away. It's going to get out there. And whether it's through the UK Daily Mail or Fox News or Washington Examiner or Daily Caller or whatever, I guess you can criticize the source. But when it comes to screenshots of, you know, photographs and videos and text messages, the source doesn't matter if it's authentic. That's their way of just saying we don't like the source of this. We don't like that it came from Daily Caller. Well, if you don't like that it came from Daily Caller, then you fucking guy should have reported on it. Um as I've said, and I stand by this, I think Hunter Biden is the thing dangling over Joe Biden for the Republicans. And if I'm advising Joe Biden, who is clearly also advising Merrick Garland, um, put aside what you think about Donald Trump. And, and I read the Washington Post story. Um, the, the things that they're looking at possibly charging him on is mostly the, the witness testimony that we saw on January 6th, which is mostly hearsay, which usually doesn't stand up in a court of law. And I've said that if I'm advising Biden, I'm sitting here saying, do you have any idea what this looks? And you can blame, again, Joe Biden for appointing Merrick Garland AG because that has a big role to play in this. You have a sitting attorney general who was a SCOTUS nominee who was prevented from sitting on the Supreme Court by the president. He is now launching a criminal probe into how do you think that looks? How do you think that looks to the country? And it doesn't unless you have Trump like physically shooting a Capitol police officer on tape, you know, and even then he wouldn't lose a single supporter. Um, then I look at it and I'm going, this looks like a political driven prosecution to keep Trump out of the Oval Office. I have a piece coming to Washington Examiner on this that's going to uh, raise some eyebrows. I don't want to spoil anything, uh, but it's on this topic. And. I look at it and I say this, if you're going to go down this road, if they really choose to go down this road, the political left, the professional never Trump, and obviously the media, if you collectively are going to go down this road of, you know, banging the drums to prosecute Trump on something that is a pretty murky territory that you may, that you don't really have evidence on, um, get ready. That's what I would say, because the next Republican attorney general, it, it could be a president DeSantis or a president Tim Scott, it could be anybody. And their AG could be, I don't know, Trey Gowdy, pick one. Um, Hunter Biden's going to be prosecuted. 100%. He will be prosecuted by, you know, under federal charges. It could be, you know, wire fraud, for instance, or everything that we have him on video for, legal possession of a firearm. That would be a fun one. 
And we know that the same that we know that the people pushing this in, uh, the prosecution of Trump will be the first ones screaming about a banana republic and prosecuting political opponents and doing this. And at that point, me and I'm sure most of the people in this audience just shrug and we go, you wanted to go down the road. We're down that fucking road now. And also we're going to indict Hillary Clinton just for the lulls of it. OK, and that's where we're going. And we know that if that side is ready to go down that road. Okay, let's hold hands and let's all go. Okay, let's do it. But we know that when a Republican attorney general, out of sheer spite, says Hunter Biden's going to federal prison, that's it. Um, we know they're going to be the first person screaming about a political prosecution. Like I said, I, I'm just going to shrug and I'm going to be like, you have more on Hunter Biden than you do on what you tried to convict Trump on. Um it's interesting because I'm not really an institutionalist, and yet here I am making the case for the norms. While you have the norms crowd going, yeah, we should look at maybe prosecuting Trump. I don't know. What's the price of doing nothing? You know, the chin strokers. And I'm just sitting here saying either you you don't know the road we're going down or you are aware of the road you're going down and you don't care. And I'm telling you where this is going to lead. And I guess if you want to go ahead with this uh criminal probe into Trump. And, and I don't, I don't know how this doesn't end with not charging Trump. It's sort it's sort of like the Dobbs case leak. If you're going to put this out there, you better fucking just hit the gas pedal and go. We're two, we're two and a half years past these events. So you better just do it. Um, I look at it and I say, Joe Biden can say, okay, we're not going to do this. At least put it out there. He'll get the message or whatever. Um, but we're not going to do this because if you really want to do this, uh, when Joe Biden leaves the White House in January of 2025, he's going to get to spend his last few remaining years alive watching his only living son go to federal prison. That's that's what I'm telling Joe Biden. And that's if I'm the Republicans, that's what I'm telling Joe Biden right now. I'm saying if you want to do this, do it. Um, but and oh, by the way, we're going to find out who 10 percent to the big guy is. So it might just not be the son. We might also charge the father in this case. Well, Okay, I'm all for that. Let's go. I don't I don't care about Donald Trump. I don't care really if they prosecute him. I don't really care about that personally. Um, I look at it and I say, we know the road that we're going down. And I know that the first fucking people that will scream about a prosecution of Hillary Clinton or Hunter Biden will be the same people, you know, thumping those drums. The John Carls, the Maggie Habermans, the John Harwoods, the Jake Tappers, the Lester Holtz. The New York Times op-ed board that Washington, those same people who are encouraging this, which is basically, you know, a, a blue check resistance Twitter fever fantasy has now just been dropped into the mainstream media and they're just running with it. And I'm just kind of amazed by it. I'm like, OK, let's go. Um, but we all know these are the same people that will start to scream banana republic and lawlessness uh, when Hunter Biden is frog marched in front of a grand jury. Uh, I really hope that regardless of what Merrick Garland does or doesn't do to Trump, that the next Republican administration would proceed with the uh, prosecution of Hunter Biden. Yeah, and see, I, I look, I look is... at that and I say, um, do you have a case there? Yeah, I certainly think you do on wire fraud. I certainly think you do on illegal firearms and charges. Um, but as I said, I, I kind of look at things like I think Mitch McConnell looks at things, which is – we're okay with the status quo here. And I, I look at what Trump and I said, to me, he's not, he lost the election. He left Washington like a pouty little baby. That, that to me is enough. And they impeached him again. Okay. He wasn't even fucking office when they decided to impeach him again. And I'm kind of like, I think that that's enough. Okay. And if you think the prosecuting him is going to keep him out of the Oval Office again, 
again, I'm, I would encourage you to read what I have coming to the examiner on Thursday. Um, I look at it and I say, the Hunter Biden is out there as a what if. It's sort of like when, when Harry Reid said he was going to nuke the filibuster. Mitch McConnell went out there and said, if you do it, you're going to regret it. And I promise you it's going to be sooner than you think. Well, Harry Reid went out and he did it. McConnell said, great. He nuked the SCOTUS filibuster. And here we are. And they are sure shit fucking regretting it. So I'm kind of okay with the status quo of saying, look, uh, Donald Trump was humiliated enough. He lost. Uh, the fact that he can't come to grips with that, I think, is enough. He was impeached. He lost the election. He's not a two-term president. He could be again, but that is, again, at the conditions that Joe Biden is is, is putting down. So, yeah, I guess I look at it and say, could you prosecute Hunter Biden? You could, but I would leave that out there as a carrot and say, look, we, we can all pull back from this right now. Um, another Another example of this is I do think Joe Biden will be impeached if Republicans take the House. And people will say, well, on what? I'm like, doesn't matter. <laughs> they impeach, you guys impeached the last guy over a phone call, okay, that I think probably wasn't an impeachable offense. Censure? Yeah, maybe, probably. Um, but that's what you guys have now put the bar at. So, I don't know, we'll impeach Joe Biden for Afghanistan or whatever. It doesn't even matter what it is. So I look at it and I say, uh, I do think Biden gets impeached by the House. I don't think it is in the Senate because McConnell has said he's not interested in that. So that's kind of that's kind of how I look at politics in that in that way. And I and I know that that doesn't satisfy everyone's bloodlust. And <laughs> there, there are times when I'm for bloodlust and I'm and I'm all for it. Uh, but I'm generally one of these people where I'm OK with. Again, you don't I've said this before. You don't use political power. You don't exercise political power that you want to see used against you. And I think that that goes for both teams. So when you get into this brinkmanship. Uh, if again, if the political left and Merrick Garland want to go prosecute Trump, okay, but you're not going to like where this leads at all. But we'll go there, and then again, we know that we should have an honest arbiter of these situations in our national media. But we know that they're generally on one team, and we know that they don't believe in playing by the rules that are all laid down. And that, and I've always kind of said that I, we're playing by their rules. These aren't my rules that we're playing by. Um, they're setting the game, they're setting the rules, they're putting out people on the field, and all we're doing is making them play by them. And so, again, I, I get I get what people are saying, that lock Hillary Clinton up and, and do all of this stuff, and lock Fauci up, and all that. And I look at it, and I'm just like, you know what, let's know. Let's, there's more important things to be doing here, and there's a lot of bigger fucking problems that uh, need to be solved. Um, so I, I get why people are like that. I get why, but I think Hunter Biden is just that carrot, and you say, look, Joe, you're 79 years old. You have a precious few remaining years maybe left. Do you want to spend those years mourning over Bo Biden while your only remaining living son rots in federal prison? Because that's how you're going to go out. And I think that that would give him something to think about. Because uh, Joe Biden could call in Merrick Garland tomorrow and say, message received, let's, you know, let's back off of this, whatever. And I don't think that he's going to do that. Yeah, your, uh, your your position it makes a lot more sense politically and probably pragmatically than mine does. But I guess the way I look at it is, you know, the, the nexus of corruption between the Democratic Party in, in Washington and the uh, the federal bureaucracy is just so out of control at some point that at some point heads are going to have to start to roll before this. Oh, I agree with. I mean, I, and I agree with that. And you know, somebody said when when Jonathan Swan laid out this thing about. Uh, 
Trump, you know, saying he's going to fire all the civil servants and put in his own people, whatever. And I think it was Michael Malice who said he didn't do that his first time. So what makes you believe he's going to do this in the second time? And that's kind of where I'm at. He has um, the right to do it anyway. Right. That was the whole thing with firing James Comey. He has the right to do it. You don't, you don't have to even like, you could just call him and say, you're gone. Sorry. Uh, goodbye. And you get this outrage. And I'm generally not one of these like rusty Shackelford conspiracy, deep, deep state guys, but these people really do believe that it's their job to protect the country from, you know, whoever the president is. And, and as I've said in the past, it's not, that's not your fucking job. It's not Peter Strzok's job. It's not James Comey's job. It's not any of those people's job who is unelected. The country it's the president's to, job to make them accountable. The, the, it's, it's the country's job. We elect the president and you know what? If it's the people's job, and if we elect mm -hmm. a raging lunatic madman who we elect him president and his first day in office, he runs in, runs in the Oval Office, swivels around in a chair, opens the red button, hits it, and suddenly Denmark is, has a nuclear weapon exploding over it. We made that choice. And that's, that's the whole point. It's a republic if you can keep it. So it is up to us if it, if it fails or succeeds. It's not up to unelected FBI bureaucrats who sit there and think it's their job to protect the country uh, from the from the president. That's not what their job is. And that's kind of where I've always come down. And that's given me a lot of scorn as someone who's anti anti Trump. No, I am pro democracy. I'm pro republic. I'm pro we voted for this. And mm -hmm. it, you buy the ticket and you take the ride. And some of it was good. And a lot of it was bad and whatever. And you have to be honest and weigh those things. And you can't let this fucking guy drive you crazy. And I get another four years might drive a lot of us crazy. Um, but that's also the choice we decided to make as a country, period. And that is my problem with, you know, the FBI and people in the Trump administration undermining him and undermining his orders, however crazy they are. Um, it's not their job. We chose this route. And for them to act like, you know, again, unelected bureaucrats um, who think that they're somehow protecting us, the voters who voted for it, uh, is, is a back passwords logic that I just I can't get behind. So um, again, I, I get that, you know, I'm one of these guys where I pump the brakes and I'm like, uh, I'm not all for that flag waving blood loss. There are there are some things I'm for that on. Um, you know, I, I'm for that right now in the Public Education Bureau. Just get rid of that. It's one of my favorite things when you see people in the media say it's the Republicans are out to destroy public schools. And it's like, yep, yep, we are. You got it. <laughs> and it's no more hiding behind that one. Um, and again, I think that that's also part of the new right and it's part of the new comms people on the right that can just outward say that. Say, so, yes, you failed public schools. We're out to destroy them. You got us. Uh, what can I say? I guess I'm just an idealist. <laughs> anyway, um, I think we, we've taken up a good chunk of time here, so I'll let someone else get on. Thank you for taking my call. And no, no worries, Brandon. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to just try to blow through these last seven here. I set a heart out, but um, we'll just keep going, whatever. Andrew, what's go ahead? What's on your mind? Yeah, hey, Stephen, can you hear me? Sorry. Hey. Yep, you're good. Okay, cool. Yeah. So my my thing is, and I I'm, I feel like I'm like the tinfoil hat meme guy you see from Always oh, Sunny's Philadelphia, the Charlie guy. When these stories come out, you know about a Trump, you know he's going to get indicted and everything. And I think really my thing is I I really think like. You know, you discuss the whole strategy potentially behind indicting him or not indicting him. I really think it, it goes kind of beyond that for Democrats. I think really at this point, you know, the, when we the last couple of months we've had the unfortunate shootings, and then they thought that would that would help bring them up in the polls. It didn't happen. 
the Dobbs decision happened. They had a little bit of a bump, and now it's kind of evened out again. So I feel like this is their this is almost essentially this kind of story is their last shot because what they want Trump to do is announce even earlier than what it looks like he's going to announce. That way he can campaign across the country saying, you can't indict me, I'm running for president, this is unfair. And then go to states like Georgia and Pennsylvania, do the whole 2020 redux, um, you know, or that he won the election and everything. And it's just, you know, it, it seems, I mean, to me, it seems very obvious what this whole intention is. Now I don't know if it's really, I don't think it's like a big conspiracy of all these media getting together and doing this. But, you know, to me, I just think that's really the end game is just to get him to announce even earlier and just, you know, find a way to tank, you know, Republicans and, and cross the board. So, you know, I'm, I'll go, I'll go slow. You know, I'll, I'll uh, get off. I know you yeah, have a lot more people well, to go, but thank well, you, Michael. Yeah. Hold on. But I, yeah. Hold on. I wanted to ask you one thing about that. Cause I don't, I'm not disagreeing with you. Uh, do you remember when he, the, the first impeachment, the timing of that happened mm-hmm. right as the 2020 campaign was ramping up. Right. And I, and I, and I predicted that to John Gabriel and the conservatarians. I said, they're going to impeach Trump before the election. They'll find a reason because they want to run on Trump being impeached and we can't, he can't be elected again and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's exactly what happened. I think it was, I don't remember the exact time frame of the, uh, the Zelensky phone call stuff. I think it was February or something. So they impeached Trump and um, that was leading up to the 2020 campaign. Uh, what happened with that? Do you remember? I mean, it ended predictably. He never came convicted in the Senate the impeachment. Right. But, thing, do, yeah. but do you remember that? I mean, was was him being impeached even a campaign issue from nope. July no. to, to November? No. Well, yeah, COVID. No. Yeah, so, yeah. No, yeah. it was it was completely out of the news. Completely. They didn't even run on it. Pelosi wouldn't even talk about it. And Joe Biden wouldn't even talk about it. And that's kind of how I look at this. I, I, I would agree that there is a strategy here to make Trump and this DOJ thing, this criminal thing, a primary focus. And yeah, perhaps it gets him to announce earlier. And then the 2022 midterms become a referendum on Trump and not Biden. Um, but we've seen how that strategy has played out before. It didn't work. Um, I mean, Trump didn't win the election, but it had nothing to do with the fact that he was impeached, is my point. Um, and so they can try that, but do they really think that Trump being investigated by the DOJ is what people are going to be voting on in 2022? No, it won't even be a top issue. It will be below climate change. Uh, the, the top issues right now are inflation, gas prices, and now a recession. And nothing you can do is going to get out from under that. Nothing. Um, but I would agree with you that that's, that looks to be part of the strategy. Awesome. All right. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate it. Thanks for being kind of quick on that. Uh, yeah, like I said, we'll uh, we'll try to wrap up with Rob. Uh, Eric, I'm going to boot you out of the uh, queue. Um, but like I said, I'm probably going to be back here Thursday. So if I see you towards the end there, um, I'll go ahead and try to bump you up. Miles, what's on your mind? Hey, Stephen. going to throw you a little softball. Um, people before me took some so my answer my questions um wanted to see it's been about six seven months into the year what's your uh leading album of the year so far (laughs) um i have a couple um i don't really have them listed all yet uh but i do i do have a few that are aside um 
I don't really have an. Here's here's what I'll I'll give you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'll give you the seven that I have uh, in my little best of folder. And like this could end up changing. I might take some out. I might add some later. Uh, some of these could end up being my best. Some of them could not be. Some of them are just ones that I'm listening to a lot. I don't even know if they're the best. Um, so I have Misky Laurel Hell, which I just I saw her a few months ago too. Uh, I have Black Country New Road, uh, Ants from Up There, which is that one's making everybody's uh, top of the year lists, um, which is funny because they just like fired their singer and they're starting new material. Like this, this is like kind of a one off. Uh, I have Orville Peck Bronco, which is uh, growing on me. I'm, I'm an Orville Peck fan anyway. Uh, but this, the arrangements of some of the songs on this are kind of starting to grow on me a little bit more. Uh, Shout Out Loud's House. I don't know if I would have that in there. I just, the Shout Out Loud's are one of my favorite bands. They never put out a bad album, ever. Um, Andrew Bird, Inside Problems, I will say right now is probably leading the pack. Um, and I, Andrew Bird is kind of sort of hit or miss, and I know fans are like, whatever. Um, but he, there's such so many great little tunes on this. He has, there's a lot of like velvet underground on this album. Um, but that, this is probably the one I've listened to the most. And the one out of the most recent one that I have in this little folder of mine is Barty Strange Farm to Table, um, which it's, he's, he's a little bit more poppy and techno-y than he has been in the past. Um, but that's another one I just, I find myself listening to a lot. So none of the, I, I don't know if I have a best of the year yet, but those are, those are the ones sitting in the folder at least. So that's kind of this, that, this could be a spoiler for, uh, my top five end of the year podcasts that we always do. So if you have recommendations, uh, I'm always up for those as well. Oh, I mean, you're, uh, your top five last year opened me up to Death Heaven and all that and all those other ones. So um, you see, you give me plenty to check out. So appreciate it. Uh, my only recommendation would be I don't know if you heard of Krongbin or not, but they're uh, um, more of a instrumental kind of a international interesting band. Um, give them a give them a chance if you haven't before, but uh, appreciate it. Was a good one. I always, I'll always take like the ones out of uh, left field. So, um, and there's still so many to go this year. Like, yeah, 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 have a new one coming out here soon. And I love the first, I love the yeah, yeah, single. Um, it sounds so just kind of different from other things they've doing, and they haven't released any new music in like five, six, seven years. Uh, so that's what I'm looking forward to. I know it's kind of cliche, um, and there's a few others. So, um, but yeah, those are kind of my. Uh, those are the ones sitting in my folder. Ardra, you're up. Uh, go ahead and hit uh, Ardra if you want to unmute your mic. It's just that little icon at the bottom there. Can you hear me? Yep, I got you. Go ahead. Uh, so, as I started off, uh, first time caller, long time wilderness uh-huh. reader. <laughs> um, my question is: How extreme is the the turn on Biden going to be after the midterms? Because the press have just covered and dragged his ass. And like today with the recess, the recession redefinition, I it's so my question is, when the midterms are over, how extreme are they just going to drop the hammer on Biden or are they just going to keep covering? Uh, it'll be extreme. I said the, as in the very next day. Um, if, if there are stories right now, like I, I just I went to this and I talked about CNN's homepage. 
and the amount of Trump stories, whatever. And right up here, I'll just go back to this one. Uh, right at kind of the top of CNN, a CNN poll, 75% of Democratic voters want someone other than Biden. That is a story by Kate Sullivan. If CNN is putting that out there, that is already a, you know, a shot across the bow. And that's what these are. These are warnings to Biden. They aren't, these, these aren't news stories. The fact that they're even polling this. We also saw today New, uh, New Hampshire did a uh, poll uh, where they listed Biden behind Buttigieg. Um, I don't know how Buttigieg primaries him unless Biden says he's not running. Um, and Harris is somewhere right down the line at 6%. Ocasio-Cortez is polling higher than Harris. Um, and so the only way that I see that happening is if Biden says he's not going to run again. Um, I, I don't see how somebody like Pete Buttigieg would primary him. Uh, I could see Ocasio-Cortez primarying him or Bernie or a few others, Gavin Newsom possibly. Gavin Newsom was, was the other one up at like 10%. Um, I don't see, obviously, Kamala Harris primarying him. That would be fucking juicy as hell, but I don't see that happening. Um, and I've said, uh, if Biden just gets historically blown out in the midterms, which looks like it's going to happen, um, I, I think right now he loses both the House and the Senate. It will be the very next day. They will be telling him to step aside, 100%. It will be that fast. Um, I, I've said that. I think I said that in a piece at either. I think it was Examiner where I said the very next morning will be uh, once they see what the damage is and once they see that the House is, you know, almost at a two thirds majority, which is where it's headed. And they've now lost the Senate. And now Biden's agenda is effectively dead in the water. They're, he's, they're not going to be able to pass anything. You're not codifying Roe v. Wade. You're not even getting a climate. You're getting nothing, nothing. Um, it's the very next day. It will be that, it will be that swift and it will be that fast and it will be that hard to say Biden needs to step aside. It will be in such blunt language that, uh, you're going to have to be like waking each other up to even believe that your eyes are seeing it. Um, and so that's, I, I readily believe that. So that's, it's going to be like something we haven't seen, uh, against a democratic president. Cause obviously they're not going to do that to Obama. Um, uh, it will be, uh, it will be the force of a Kathy Bates sledgehammer hit, hitting a James Conn ankle in misery. Uh, that was perfect imagery. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, we have Ian and Rob, and then Rob's going to wrap us up. So not going too, too much overboard. Go ahead, Ian. Oh, Stephen, I was going to ask about the the two stories that came out today about how Republicans seem to have finally learned a lesson they should have learned 10 years ago about not talking to reporters. Uh, but I think you pretty much covered that already. So there were two other things. One, uh, I, you, think I mean, yeah, you can comment on it if you have thoughts on it, obviously. I mean, it was, it's more about the fact that I, what I, I think it was Joe Simonson that, was doing a thread on it and pointed out that at one point in the article, they say that why one of the Republicans says, why would we speak to someone who clearly hates us? Yeah. And then the person who writes is writing the article said, well, they won't talk to us, but what would they really provide anyway? They're so such evil people. It's the yeah. lack of self-awareness is, it never ceases to amaze me. But yeah, I think yeah, no, far I, more no, important. 
I would more important than that, I wanted to bring to your attention that Stacey Abrams uh, seems to have gone full Clinton 2020 campaign and posted a Little Miss future governor of the state of Georgia. Yeah, it's funny. I just just saw this. And (laughs) yeah, I mean, uh, I think she posted on Instagram. They're doing this meme, the Little Mr. Little Miss happy memes, whatever. And uh, okay. And she posted on her Instagram saying, Little Miss Future Governor of the great state of Georgia. So that's about as close to happy birthday to this future president as you can get. Um, Mm -hmm. They've listed Abrams now as falling behind severely in the polls. They're starting to hit the panic button on her in Georgia um, to where they've a lot of polling has moved Georgia to a probable right or lean right at least. And what's funny about Georgia is good governance matters and it matters more important than say Trump endorsing a fucking Yahoo down there because people didn't bite on it. They're like, no, we like Kemp. What are you doing, dude? Um, and obviously, you know, Herschel Walker down there is Trump's handpicked guy and that will, that we have yet to see how that'll shake out or whatever. Um, but Stacey Abrams, the other interesting thing about her is this, the story came out about her funding where like 89% of her fundraising is from out of state. And most of it is from California and New York and celebrities. And that should tell you something like she's not the, the person in Georgia. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't know where you are in the country, Ian, but she's not the person in Georgia that the media is making her out to be. I mean, she was on fucking Star Trek for God's sakes. I mean, it's, um, it's Beto O'Rourke 2.0. It's, yeah, and, and, it's we just, where... and we even just got a New York Times fluff piece on fucking Beto again, saying, is this time different? No, it's not. Um, I mean, but please, originally... please keep spending, please, please keep pouring money into into his coffers. Please keep donating your money to Beto O'Rourke. That was, there's nothing more Republicans would love to see that. And the only comment I had about Stacey Abrams is... I posted the the mask photo of her sitting on the floor surrounded by mask kids. And she's got that big toothy Mike Tyson grin on. And I just said, that's it. That was it. And everybody in the media knows it because they, they saw the reaction in the media. They were like, Oh fuck, that's not good. But no one in the media had to answer for why that wasn't good. Uh, we never got an explanation as to why she apologized. Why did she think the photo was a good idea, but then had to apologize for it? Why, why did you not think it was a good idea? Or why did you think it was a good idea? And then why are you apologizing now? Because it says volumes about what they think about kids being masked in school. And I, I think that that photograph was the end of her campaign. And that was kind of her Howard Dean moment. And we don't get very many of those these days because – uh, so many of these people are just so shameless where they don't withdraw, they don't pull out of their campaigns, whatever. Um, but it really was. That, to me, was the end of her campaign. And ever since that moment, she's been going down in the polls. And it looks like uh, she, she's just going to get absolutely fucking creamed. Yeah, these these instances in Beto and Stacey Abrams remind me. I'm originally from West Virginia, and I see all of these national people talking about Joe Manchin, that we need to get rid of Joe Manchin. We need to replace Joe Manchin for the Democratic Party. And they don't seem to realize, I mean, even Matt Iglesias can realize if you don't have Joe Manchin in there from West Virginia, you're getting a Republican. Like it's the, the inability to grasp the fact that this is not a purple state. It is a fucking miracle that you have a Democrat from the state. 
and you're doing everything on earth to distance him and piss him off so that he is less and less likely to work with you when he has no requirement to do so. Yeah, I mean, they don't... This this comes down to how Twitter runs democratic national politics where, you know, Joe Manchin is Satan trends, uh, you know, four times a week. And you're right. They don't understand West Virginia. You can either have Joe Manchin or you can have a Republican. Those are your choices. And this idea that you're going to get rid of him for, I don't know, someone like a John Fetterman or AOC uh, lookalike, whatever, is just it's not going to happen. Now, they'll make the argument that he's a Republican anyway. Well, no, not really. He is, he's just a moderate. And he sits there and says, I'm not going to fucking vote for this because of where inflation is. And, you know, a saner Democratic Party would be thanking their stars about Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. Um, like I said, I saw a tweet last week, which was great. And this was just this was from an account that didn't even have a fucking avatar. And they said... Just remember, with everything you're dealing with right now, with inflation, with gas prices, with grocery price increases, everything is a result of the moderate package the Democrats were forced to pass because of Joe Manchin. Imagine if they had gotten what they wanted. And that's, you know, it's such a brilliant, salient, simple little statement. And yeah, it, this, like I said, this comes down to Twitter, you know, the Democratic Party t- being run by Twitter messaging. Um, and the thing you just love about Manchin is he just really doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> He's just kind of like, you know, yeah, you, you're stuck with me. You know, you, you know, I'm not locked in a room with you. You're locked in a room with me. And so we can either work together or you can go get lost in your fucking little canoes outside my houseboat. I mean, he is, and this will be the thing I, I fall off on, but he is the last vestige of what was a dominant Democratic Party in the state of West Virginia, the blue dog, heavy union uh, Democratic Party that just ran roughshod over the state for decades. He is the last remnant that was basically executed by Obama and Clintons who came in there with the with the green energy climate change agenda and basically said, fuck your unions, we don't care about you because you're mining coal. And even though only like 30 or 40,000 of the people nowadays actually work in coal mines and mining towns, like that was the lifeblood of the, of the state. And people, like there's about 2 million people in the state, they all are aware of the history of the state and where that history comes from. So even though you're only attacking like two or five percent of the of the people and like that job base, they the entire state takes it personally when you're going after that industry. And so he is there's a reason why Jim Justice switched from being a Democrat to being a Republican uh, a few years back. It's because he knew which way the wind was blowing. But yeah, uh, thanks for giving me the time and. I guess I'll talk to you again on Thursday. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, it is one of these things with Manchin where you just, you sit back and shrug and you go like, you know, he's saving your party and you don't even see it. So, uh, Rob, bring us home, make it all worth our while. Uh, your last one for today. Awesome. Well, I hate to end on a potentially nightmarish scenario, but, uh, something uh, tells me that there is a name that we have not heard yet, 
uh, become whispers the morning after the November election. And it is a name that I think has the capability to unite the young crowd, the old crowd. Uh, I think this is someone who has uh, 30 years, basically a lifetime of uh, political, national political experience without any of the baggage. And that name is Chelsea Clinton. What do you think? Uh, you're right that it's a pretty nightmare scenario, and I don't think she, at least for now, uh, wants anything to do with electoral politics. Um, it, it, it is interesting, at least, that uh, Nana is poking her head up and around, and I don't think it's because she's running for anything. Um, but it is interesting that Hillary Clinton has kind of gone after the Biden administration privately and said uh, – has wondered why they're not calling her and, and making her like a louder voice in the party and whatever. And I, I do think it's funny that Hillary Clinton still wields influence in the media. And of course with that party uh, being the person who lost to Donald Trump, um, she had a layup election and she blew it. And so I don't know, even if the taste is there, for a, for another Clinton. I think the Clintons are probably revered as the Bushes uh, of the Democratic Party. Now, they're certainly loved in our media. Like Kelsey Clinton, she, they're, they're releasing like a Netflix documentary or something where they're interviewing people. Um, and what's interesting is I generally think Kelsey Clinton thinks a lot like the Obamas, which is they don't think that the way to win arguments or influence people or whatever is in politics. They think it's through entertainment. Um, I think Chelsea Clinton inked like an Amazon deal or some or something as well. And she's done children's books and things like that. So I think she looks at it the same way the Obamas do, that the way to influence people or get new voters or whatever is to do so through podcasting. Um, and I certainly couldn't disagree with that. Or, you know, authoring, you know, children's books or things of that nature. Um, now that doesn't mean like down the road, like in the Ocasio-Cortez administration or whatever, she wouldn't be tapped for an ambassadorship or some, you know, something. And that, that gets her on her diplomatic road to where, you know, Chelsea Clinton is, gosh, she's probably what in her forties now, um, you know, in her fifties or her sixties, um, you know, maybe, maybe she gives it a run there. Um, but I, I just I don't I don't see the Democratic Party having any taste for someone like her right now, much in the same way that the Republican Party doesn't have a taste for maybe someone like George P. Bush. Ah, uh, okay, uh, yeah, my my uh, yeah, just that nightmarish premonition was that uh, Chelsea would be the one name that would just be too enticing for GOP vote, primary voters. To uh, not to go back to Donald Trump simply for the laws of, ooh, we can get Trump to beat a Clinton a second time. And to me, that is my personal political hell. And that's really saying something because I live in the heart of Marjorie Taylor Greene's congressional district. <laughs> um, Rob, do you think Marjorie Taylor Greene has any... Uh shall we say, more ambitious, uh, 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 do you think she has any more national ambitions other than her current office? Um, I hope not, but I'll, I'll just uh, end uh, on a, a slightly comedic note. 
now you know why I need to listen to Hootie and the Blowfish to cheer me up all the time, because life is fun down here where I live. Uh, it, 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 it certainly sounds like it, so... Um, yeah, go, go, uh, MGT. And, uh, I don't know. She, she's one that it wouldn't shut one of the, one of those two or three is going to throw their hat in the ring. It's either going to be her or Gates or, or someone of that nature, or even Mike Lindell. So, um, maybe even, maybe even there's a chance she's tapped as Trump's new VP. Oh dear Lord! And on See, that note, I'm, I'm really, I'm really good at outdoing nightmare scenarios. In case you couldn't tell. <laughs> well, I think in that case, uh, I want to drink myself to sleep. Cheers, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Uh, go, go, America, go Broncos. Um, <laughs> so that's great. Um, well, that's good. We wrapped it up. We didn't go three hours this time, everyone. So uh, only about 30 minutes over, so that's okay. So, uh, again, thanks, everyone, for tuning in late here. Like I said, I loved, I love hanging out with the degenerates and the dregs sometimes. And um, so uh, so this has been episode 28, Vanity Unfair. Like I said, I'm going to try to be back here Thursday as well. And uh, my goal is to maybe do these a little bit more often and keep them shorter so it kind of evens out a little bit more. Um, but Thursday should be interesting because we also get the GDP numbers. And we'll probably get more on this uh, Washington Post story of, I guess, trying to indict Trump. <laughs> Have fun, guys. Like I said, you're not going to like where that goes. Uh, once again, this is uh, Versus Media Live. I will be back on Patreon tomorrow. Uh, following up on a cute couple of things. I should also have a piece at Spectator coming out on Samantha B tomorrow and Thursday. Like I said, keep your eyes and ears peeled for my examiner piece, um, which will go into all of this stuff with Trump, Merrick Garland, Liz Cheney, our media and the voters. Uh, it's, it's something that I think is going to set some hairs on fire. So be, uh, be looking out for that as well. Uh, thanks everyone again for calling in. Uh, thanks to those of you that uh, participated. And like I said, um, we do this a lot. So even if you're just kind of in there background, if you have thoughts, we're, we're very non-judgy here. So don't ever hesitate to jump in and join the conversation. I'm Stephen L. Miller, and you can also get me on Twitter. Uh, go, go to bed, you degenerates. All right. And I'll probably talk to you guys back here maybe Thursday. Cheers. <laughs>